This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the eminent historian Eric J. Dolan about his new book, Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution. It's an eventful book, Eric, one that casts a game-changing light on the war for independence, won not by the battles fought on land, but by the battles fought at sea. You tell a story that gets short shrift in our standard textbooks, and perhaps you can begin with a definition of privateering. Sure. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate this. Uh, Privateers were uh, armed vessels. They were owned and outfitted by private individuals, and they had government permission to capture enemy ships in times of war. And that permission came in the form of what is called a a letter of mark. It's a formal legal document that a government issues uh, to give the bearer or the owner of the vessel usually the right to seize vessels belonging to belligerent nations and to claim those vessels as prizes or the spoils of war. What happens is after a privateer goes out and captures, in this case, a British uh, merchant ship, brings it back to the Vice Admiralty Court, and it's determined that it is a suitable or an appropriate prize, and it was taken in the proper manner. The ship and its contents are put up for sale, and the proceeds from that is split evenly between the owner of the ship and the men who were on board. And these privateers were have been used since the 13th century by various European powers as a way to amplify their power upon the sea and effectively wage war. It's particularly useful for countries that don't have really powerful navies. And the idea is to inflict as much economic and military pain as you can at no expense to the government on the enemy. And some people called privateers a cost-free navy. Other people have dubbed them the militia of the sea. And as you stated in your introduction, the core argument of the entire book is that while there were many factors that contributed to our success in the American Revolution, privateering was a very important one and unfortunately is often overlooked in in the books that are out there. When do we get started with it? I mean, the the Battle of Lexington and Concord is April 1775, and and then later that summer and fall at Bunker Hill. But we start sending out privateers in 1775, right? By by the end of And we don't have very many of them at the beginning. What happened initially is, of course, uh, it was very much a defensive war at the beginning. Uh, the colonists and the, the, really the the, uh, the hot seat of the revolution was in Massachusetts. They were the capital of uh, the metropolis of sedition, according to King George and Parliament. And that's where all the trouble was taking place. And that's what England chose to clamp down upon. And they thought that if they solved the problem with Massachusetts and they put them in their place, that this entire uprising would sort of fizzle out. And of course, they were woefully wrong about that. But what happened is Massachusetts was in a position where they wanted to defend themselves because the British were attacking a lot of colonial ships and particularly 
Massachusetts ships. So they wanted to defend themselves, uh, but they didn't want to enter into an offensive war necessarily. And uh, one of the key ways in which Massachusetts chose to do this was taking leaf out of the Continental Congress's request that the colonies defend themselves at sea. And Massachusetts took the first step because it had a lot of experience with privateering in former wars. It was where the locus of all the action was. Their ships were getting attacked the most by British forces. So you see in the summer and the early fall of 1775, a number of uh, Massachusetts mariners and ship owners coming forward, offering the provincial Congress, hey, we're here, we have armed ships, we want to go out and attack British ships, can we do it? Why don't you issue letters of mark to give us formal legal permission to do this? And the provincial Congress was a little wary about this because according to international law, you're not supposed to issue letters of mark unless you're a sovereign nation. And Massachusetts and, and the Continental Congress, for that matter, didn't want to suddenly declare their independence yet. So it was kind of a tricky thing, but Massachusetts decided, okay, we've got this uh, large group of this mariner class and merchant class who wants to do something to fight back, to defend their interests. We know all about letters of mark, and they decide on November 1st to pass the first privateering statute in the colonies. And it starts off slowly, but there are a number of ships who receive letters of mark, who go out, start capturing some very valuable uh, British ships and other states or other colonies at this time. They're not states yet. Other colonies take up uh, the, the, the same battle. You have New Hampshire and Rhode Island, uh, equally maritime colonies, in early 1776 saying, hey, we are going to issue letters of mark as well. We're going to unleash our privateers. And at this time, what's happening is Great Britain is ramping up its attacks against the colonies. You have the Pro Prohibitory Act, uh, which the colonists find out about in early 1776, it essentially cuts off all trade between Great Britain and the colonies and restricts their ability to trade with anybody else in the British Empire. It also closes down fishing opportunities and it also <laughs> makes American sailors good targets for British ships to impress, impress Americans onto their ships, which is something that the Americans are really upset about. So you've got this tumult going on and then you've got People in other colonies, in particular Philadelphia, a bunch of citizens band together in Philadelphia, and they petition the Continental Congress to start issuing continental letters of mark. Let's not do this on a piecemeal basis, colony by colony. Let's have an overall blanket system. And Congress starts debating this. They're wary for the same reasons that Massachusetts and then New Hampshire and Rhode Island were wary because we haven't officially declared independence yet. Uh, but Continental Congress decides that the harassment and the, the level of attacks that are being sustained in the American colonies are such that they, too, have to get into the privateering business, which they do on March 23rd of 1776, and then they issue the regulations a couple of weeks later. And from that point forward, the floodgates open. And during the course of the American Revolution, although numbers are not exact uh, for a variety of reasons, they're roughly between 1,600 and 1,800 privateers that are operating, American privateers, attacking British interests. And there are tens of thousands 
of American privateersmen who are on those ships going all over the Atlantic, and they in turn capture roughly the same amount of British ships, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,600 to 1,800 or perhaps more British ships. Most of them are merchant ships. Some of them are military ships, warships. And this causes great economic pain to Britain. About 8% of their fleet is being captured uh, in particular year. In the Caribbean, where most of the British trade is concentrated in their sugar colonies, they are dealing with a 66% reduction in profits coming from that region because the Americans have captured hundreds of British ships, not just ships taking commodities back and forth, such as you know sugar and, and uh, rum and other things, but also they've really made an impact on the British slave trade. And the American privateers are capturing a lot of the British slavers that are going between Africa and the Caribbean. So privateering is a major thorn in the side of the British. It forces them to redeploy some of their naval ships to act as uh, in convoy with merchant ships to protect them from privateer attacks. Uh, they also It also changes a little bit of the military strategy in the colonies as well. They send out uh, forays to attack ports up and down the eastern seaport where these privateers are issuing from. So so more than just a minor inconvenience, privateering, as one historian said, is probably the largest industry in the colonies and in the states during the American Revolution. And it is having a major impact in a variety of ways, some of which I've mentioned, some of which we'll probably go into at greater length uh, a bit later. Yes, it, it, it becomes the center of the war. I mean, it, it, it's the... It's ground zero. It, 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 it's, and you make that very clear. Give, give us a sense of the size of these ships. I mean, how big are they? They're all over the place. But uh, before I give you a sense of the, the size of the ships, let me make one more distinction. There are actually two types of privateers that are operating during the American Revolution. One are what I call straight privateers. These are heavily armed merchant ships that are either converted uh, merchant ships that are made uh, to give them more armaments or fishing vessels, or they're built from the ground up to actually be privateers. And they, their sole purpose is to go out and to attack British shipping on the high seas. And they have uh, not only heavy armaments, but they also have very large crews because every time you capture a British ship, you're required to send it back into port for adjudication. So you have to take some of your crew and put them on that ship so they can sail it back to port. So over time, your crew becomes diminished and there becomes a point at which you can no longer continue on as a privateer because you're not an effective fighting force. So those are the straight privateers. But there are also privateers that were called at the time letters of mark, even though both types of privateers received a letter of mark. These letter of mark privateers, they were actually on commercial voyages. So they would go out with smaller crews. They would still be heavily armed, but smaller crews, and they'd have goods in their hold, and they'd be going to Bilbao or some other friendly port during the American Revolution to trade American goods, to bring goods back to the colonies and then the states. But they were given permission with their letter of mark 
to attack British ships should they happen upon them on the ocean, and uh, should they think they could take those British ships. But in the in the revolution, most of the captures, most of the privateering was done by the quote-unquote straight privateers. And as to what these ships looked like, it, it really was all over the board. They were almost every kind of rig that you could possibly imagine. Ships, galleys, brigs, sloops. None were enormous by our, certainly our current standards, but you know they may be 50-ton ships, 40-ton, 80-ton, maybe 100-ton ships. Uh, some of them could be as small as whale boats, 20 feet long, with a couple of swivel guns and a bunch of armed men who would actually rove up and down Long Island Sound and along the coast of New Jersey and take fairly substantial ships. Other ones were custom-built for privateering, such as the Grand Turk, which was built uh, by uh, Elias Haskett Derby, uh, the country's quote-unquote first millionaire. He probably was tied with a couple of other people, but one of the richest men in the country. And he, at first converted a lot of his merchant ships to become privateers, and he either had ownership or interest in more than 150 privateers that emanated from Salem, Massachusetts, that great maritime port. But as the war continued, he decided to build some of his own purpose-built privateers, and the most famous of which was the Grand Turk, which was a 300-ton ship, over 100 feet long. It had, uh, I think, tw- was it 24 cannons, uh, six to eight-pound cannons, a very powerful ship. And people will know more about the Grand Turk because of what happened after the American Revolution. After we won, one of the first things that Americans got involved in now that they could trade with the world was trading with China. And I I happen to have written a book on that called When America First Met China. And the Grand Turk was one of the premier ships sent out in some of the first voyages to China to open that trade. But that's that's another story. (laughs) All right. But a a privateer then sitting out from uh, the New England coast and eventually the whole Atlantic coast would go on what you call cruises with a large crew. And in the course of a cruise that would take maybe what, like three or four months, they they could capture prizes, maybe three, four or more, and send those back to the Admiralty Court's in American ports. And what, what happened when the prize came into, into a port? What, what was the procedure? Oh, well, when the prize would come back into the port, of course, the owner would be notified. There would They would have to hire a lawyer. One of the funny things that I found in working on the book is uh, privateering helped bolster local economies in a number of ways. Uh, there was supplying the privateers. There was employing the men who were on board the privateers. There was building the privateers. But one group that also benefited were the lawyers. And there are a couple of great letters that I quote in the book where lawyers were doing bang-up business because every time a potential prize was brought in, you had to hire a lawyer to, to represent you, the owner, in the Admiralty Court, they had to determine that this, in fact, was a British ship or was carrying British goods to British forces because if it was a neutral ship that didn't have any British goods on it whatsoever or if it was worse, a fellow American ship that somehow a privateer had captured that rarely happened or a neutral nation's ship that was captured and the privateer claimed, no, no, they're working for the British, but the court found out they weren't working for the British, then they would be released and the 
ship would be returned to the rightful owner. So you needed legal representation. So once you have the court process go through and it's determined that it's a valid prize, then the court would set up, uh, usually through a sheriff or some other outside auction house, would set up the, the sale. And you saw these advertisements in colonial newspapers all the time where they'd say, you know, the Rose or whatever, whatever the name was of the privateer has recently been captured. It's prize. Uh, there's going to be an auction of all of its contents, which includes so many pounds of power uh, of uh, flour, claret, hogs, you know, linens, you name it. And also we're going to sell the ship. Uh, a lot of times the privateers, prizes, the ship would be sold as well. But many of those prizes that were brought in, if they were particularly good sailing vessels, they were in turn converted into American privateers. So that was the, the basic process. First of all, what kind of cargoes did they seize? I mean, they also seized British ships bringing munitions and powder and Right. Muskets to the British Army in, in America. So you, you point out that at the beginning of, of the Revolutionary War, America is up against the greatest military power in the world. And we don't have a fleet. We don't have money. We don't have an ammunition. We don't have admirals. We don't have generals. We have nothing. Yeah, it, it is amazing, and there, there's a reason why uh, George Washington said that our victory was a quote-unquote standing miracle. And one of the things that was really driven home to me in working on this book is how many times during the revolution, if one little thing had changed, if General Howe had pursued Washington when he flushed him out of New York and Long Island, you know, if the French fleet hadn't shown up, in Chesapeake Bay in uh, October of 1781, right around the time of the Battle of Yorktown, if, if this general or this thing hadn't happened, the entire revolution could have gone in a very uh, different direction. And that's part of the reason why privateering – it makes an even stronger argument as to why privateering was a big part of our revolutionary effort. But now in answering that question so thoroughly, I lost the thread of the exact thing you wanted me to respond to. <laughs> the next thing was, after the auction, what are the division of the spoils? Okay. Who gets what? So, I mean, it seems to me, if I understand it privateer correctly, it's, it's a venture capital enterprise. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and th These are IPOs. Yeah, they they are in a real sense. And actually, now I remember to go back to your former question just a little bit. They brought in everything you could imagine, all the things that Great Britain was trading in, as well as sometimes the privateers captured ships that had specie on board, which was particularly important within the colonies who had been starved of specie for many years and needed it to prosecute the war. And sometimes they brought in prisoners. Uh, sometimes they brought in munitions. Uh, so there were a whole bunch of things that would have been would have been brought in by these privateers. But the distri distribution of the sale or the distribution of the proceeds from privateering would go to the people who invested in the privateering venture. Now, usually first in line was the owner. And sometimes owners that were particularly wealthy, they didn't ask for other investors to chip in. So they got 50% of the proceeds. And then the other 50% would be distributed among the officers and crew based on how it was split up in the articles of agreement that they all signed before they went out on their 
crews. And in many cases, in almost all cases, the captain would get, let's say, eight shares or six shares. So they get more. Uh, the first mate would get more. A uh, doctor, if there was a surgeon on board, they would get more. And then you go down to the average man on the privateering vessel and they would get one share and there were oftentimes boys on these vessels you know 12 13 year old boys they would get a a half share but your reference to ipos is exactly uh, correct because a lot of these privateering ventures were part of a speculative frenzy that almost took place within the colonial setting, and that was many people wanting to get in on the act. So not only would other owners or other wealthy merchants invest in multiple privateering ventures, but people even lower down on the socioeconomic scale would play this gambling game. And it even went as far down as the actual privateersmen who created a secondary market by selling their shares. So if Joe was going out on a privateering venture and he was due one share of the profits to come from that cruise, he could sell half of his one share for whatever he could get. And the person who purchased that one share would do very well if Joe came back from a very successful cruise. However, if Joe came back and his ship didn't capture a single British vessel, then the person who bought the half of the share would be left holding the bag and there'd be, you know, there'd be no profit. And that happened many times. And one thing that Robert Morris, who, a uh, fascinating character, we, he was dubbed the financier of the revolution uh, because he did some magical things with uh, in dire circumstances to help generate funding for the continuance of the war. But he also invested heavily in privateering ventures. And wisely, he said that you need to just keep investing, keep going, because one success can pay for three or four failures. Now, that's the owner's perspective. Obviously, the man on board the privateer would have a very different perspective. And a lot of people came back from unsuccessful cruises and were exceedingly unhappy about the results. Some of them went out again. So it was a very hit or miss proposition. It was like yes, gambling. But the rewards could be big. I mean, a, oh, a, yeah. a single share of a successful cruise could amount to a substantial amount of money. Absolutely. There were there are many cases in which people, uh, you know, Men who were very poor within the society at large could come back from a successful cruise and maybe be paid off with a thousand or two thousand pounds sterling equivalent, which would be something that as a common laborer, they wouldn't have been able to earn in 50 or 100 years. So, yes, there was it, – it, it, it's very much like gambling. I mean, you know, modern gambling – not so much like the stock market, because I, I don't equate that to gambling, because there's a lot of information and knowledge. There was less knowledge. You didn't know. You could pick a good captain. You could pick a good ship. But a lot depended on chance. And yeah. if you were lucky, if you were lucky, you could make out very well. If you were unlucky, and many, many privateers were unlucky to the extent not only of being on a ship that failed to capture an enemy ship. But what happens if you were captured yourself by a British privateer or a British military ship, naval ship? Then, as a, as a privateersman, you would be thrown in jail, either in England 
or on the horrible prison ships off uh, New York City and Wallabout Bay. Most people that ended up on the prison ships, whether they're privateers or not, died. So this is a very risky gamble. And, and, and one of the things that annoyed me about some of the writings about privateersmen is a lot of authors seem to cavalierly assume that, you know, privateers were big chickens. They would never get in a fight. They would always run unless it was an easy conquest. And I found the exact opposite. There are numerous examples of battles where a lot of people get killed. But even if you didn't get killed, there's this apocryphal saying uh, or apocryphal comment attributed to Benjamin Franklin. He, he told his fellow delegates, you know, if we don't hang together, we're going to hang separately. There's no evidence that he actually said that, but the sentiment was absolutely correct. The people who were heading up the American Revolution and all of those who fought in the American Revolution, if we lost that war, they would have been in some serious jeopardy. And privateers – they would know, the British government would know who were the privateer owners and who uh, were on the privateering vessels. And uh, so when you decided to go out as a privateer, you really put a lot of your life on the line. There was, there was a major risk. There was a possibility for great reward, but there was a lot of potential downside. So I gained a lot of respect for these men who decided to become privateersmen, just as I had a lot of respect for soldiers and men who joined the Continental Navy or Washington's secret Navy. It took a lot of guts. And I often wonder if I was back there, what I would have done, what would have been my part in the war? I don't know. <laughs> but, well, it, 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 the point is also made by a couple of numbers. I mean, Americans, you say the number that died, you know, in, in battles – on land is is about four thousand, mm-hmm. or maybe number, as high as seven thousand. Yeah. Yes, but the numbers that died in prison were of disease and, and ill treatment and brutality was something like fourteen, fifteen thousand. Yes, and most of those people were were privateersmen. Yes, so the privateersmen are taking; they have the chance for the biggest reward because they're rewarded better than the people that are being paid by the Continental Army in largely worthless currency. But but they're also taking the bigger risks. Yes. But that, that's been the case for a, a lot of wars. I don't have the statistics at the tip of my fingers, but if you look at a lot of the wars that have taken place, certainly in the 1700s, 1800s, and early 1900s, the devastation wrought by disease – alone often uh, far outstrips the number of individuals that were killed directly in the line of battle. It just seems to be the way it it, it often is. Uh, I think that that gets changed in more modern times, but certainly back then. But it's also – talk about what you call the French connection, that it's the success of of the American privateers that helps to bring the French into the war – after the Battle of Saratoga. Right. From the very beginning, the Americans wanted to get the French involved. The French and the British hated each other. For centuries, they had been at odds. They had just fought a major war, the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, and, the, and France had been drubbed by the British, and they wanted to regain their place in the in the world and certainly within Europe. And the Americans knew that they needed help. They needed financial help. They needed the supply of munitions. And ideally, they wanted the military help 
of the French. So very early on, the Continental Congress used diplomacy and other strategies to try to get the French embroiled in the war on their side. And privateering played a big role in this. One of the things they did is they sent a guy named William Bingham down to Martinique, the French colony in the Caribbean. And one of his directives was to get the French to allow American privateers to come into port there and uh, resupply, uh, get men, even sell prizes. And uh, he was very successful at that. And the French, even before he got there, decided, yeah, we're going to help the Americans. We're going to allow their privateers to come into our ports. And they later decided to do that, in, in particular, at Dunkirk in France itself on continental Europe. Now, the British were really upset by this because as a result of the Treaty of Utrecht, which ended the War of the Spanish Succession, Britain and France were not supposed to entertain the privateers of other countries unless – a privateering vessel was in great distress, was in danger of sinking. Then you can come into a port, repair, and leave immediately. So what happened was this big dance. You had Benjamin Franklin in, in France and the other commissioners trying to get Vergennes, the, the British foreign minister and the, and the king, to come in on the side of the Americans. And the French were sort of giving a wink and a nod to the Americans and saying, okay, fine, you can come into our ports, you can buy provisions, you can operate your privateers out of our ports, you can even issue letters of mark in French ports and have ships outfitted there that are captained by Americans and staffed or crewed mainly by the French. You can do all this and we'll deny to the British who were protesting left and right that we're helping you and they were letting you do this. Or we'll claim that, oh, no, 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 all those ships that came in, they either were in distress, they were leaking, or they really weren't American ships at all. They were owned by the Dutch, they were owned by the Swedes, they were, you know, somebody else. So there was this dance going on. Britain knew Lord Stormont, the British ambassador and Britain in general, they knew that France was playing this double game, but they didn't want to bring France in on the side of the French, and they didn't want to declare war because of this, and France didn't want to go in on the side of the Americans yet, because they wanted to have confidence that the Americans could beat the British in a lot of the news in 1976, 1776 and 1777 was bad for the Americans. But then comes the Battle of Saratoga and uh, the defeat of uh, Gentleman John Burgoyne's army. And all of a sudden, France has confidence that America might actually do this. And that's when they decided to sign the Treaty of Amity and Alliance before England ended the war with, uh, with the Americans. But the way the privateering played into that is it had been a major sore spot for the better part of two years between the British and the French. So it helped create a context of animosity and anger that when the time came for the French to jump and actually support the Americans – it all sort of fit into place. And, right. you know, yeah. Benjamin, Frank, Benjamin Franklin, Silas Dean, not so much Arthur Lee, but other people in America and in France at the time, Americans in France, their own statements during this time lend support to the notion that privateering was having a positive effect on right. this overall diplomatic maneuver to get the French to get involved. 
All right, and talk briefly. I mean, there's just no question of of the scale of of the effectiveness of American privateering during years, say, 1775, 1782. But then Franklin has a change of heart. And 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 talk a little about uh, your chapter, The Home Front, the attitude, the controversy surrounding privateering during the whole war and people like William Whipple. There was always an undertone of, and sometimes very uh, loud protestations on the part of many colonists and and elites in the colonies against privateering. Uh, Some thought that it it cut against Republican ideals and virtue of civic disinterestedness and, you know, you should want to do things for patriotic reasons, not for money. And I can get into that a little bit later, why I don't think it's particularly good argument against privateers, but there were people that were upset with privateers, but there were far more people who were in favor of privateering. You have to look at the font of it. That's the Continental Congress itself. They're the one that established the privateering system. They heard all of these complaints, complaints that were that privateers are sucking men and materials from the Navy. They're doing the same from the Continental Army. They're uh, loose men of bad morals and they're spending recklessly and you know they're potentially hurting our allies and they're attacking ships willy-nilly. I mean, all these arguments were ones that the Continental Congress and the delegates were very familiar with. Yet, not one moment during the American Revolution did the Continental Congress seriously consider or consider at all, for what I could find, to rescind privateering commissions and pull back on privateering because they understood that this was helping them win the war. And they also had a much broader understanding of uh, patriotism versus profit motive. And they felt that those two didn't need to be mutually exclusive. And, uh, you know, I argue very strongly that privateersmen were, many of them were just as patriotic as the average American of the day, but they also, at the same time, were motivated by profit, as were all the other Americans that were fighting, the naval, <laughs> the Navy men, the uh, military men. So the argument about them being these selfish, profit-driven uh, uh, fighters uh, sort of breaks down when you really look at the context of the situation. So, But on the home front, even though there were complaints about privateering, I think they were far outstripped by the positive aspects of privateering. And one of the ones that people don't focus on enough is exactly what was happening in the home front. Think about it. The ports up and down the East Coast were among the most important centers for political power within the colonies. In one fell swoop because of the start of the American Revolution, tens of thousands of mariners and merchants were thrown out of business. And what privateering did in a whole variety of ways, is it generated almost an industry within these ports, and it gave gainful employment to tens of thousands of men. It allowed merchants to use their uh, ships in a productive manner, and it also gave Americans some confidence that they might actually be able to beat this massive power across the Atlantic because there was a lot of good news coming from privateers. They were having a fair amount of success. And although I don't like to argue in in hypotheses or hypotheticals, you have to ask the question, what would have happened if there had been no privateering whatsoever? Well, 
uh, it's conceivable that a lot of the most powerful ports, Philadelphia, Boston, Portsmouth, other ports, New York, even before we lost it, would have been more opposed to the war. And that could have created yeah. uh, problems. Yeah. I mean, there, there are a lot and a lot of people would have been unemployed. It's also I mean, it gives rise to many of the earliest American big fortunes, a new class of right. nouveau riche. I mean, the you mentioned the Cabots of Beverly and the Browns of Providence and Tracy of Newburyport and a few others. The I, I think there's a wonderful book because it gives it, it does cast a more realistic light on, on the American war for independence. The, in the course of writing this book, are there any notable encounters or particularly inspiring commanders that drew, drew your attention? I mean, are there, are there any? What's your highlight reel? <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. You always could wish for more information. A lot of times these privateers men were somewhat laconic. They didn't often keep journals. So you don't have as much raw material to work with sometimes. But there are a number of stories that were very compelling to me, one of which is the story that started off the book, which is about Jonathan Harridan from Salem, who was a very successful American privateer. And also a con- he was also in a state Navy, uh, Massachusetts State Navy. And I talk about his encounter with this very powerful ship, British ship, the Achilles, off Bilbao, Spain. And that information about that was recorded by men on board his ship and how he really stood up to a much more powerful foe and beat that foe off to the cheering throng of people along the cliffs of Bilbao watching this fight offshore. And he really represented – the reason I started off the book with him is I think his little story represented in microcosm the larger story of most privateersmen during the war. They were people who were doing things to earn money because they were patriotic and because of what they did, they helped to win the war and the Salem Gazette labeled him upon his death a true hero. Now, that's a word that's bandied about maybe too much. But I think a lot of these privateersmen were, in a sense, heroes. And they could be in the same pantheon of other heroes in the American Revolution, even though we don't know many of their names. Uh, another story that I just love because it's fascinating is a relatively minor one about James Fortin, who is a black free man, a, a young boy, 14 years old in Philadelphia. And he's fired by patriotic fervor because Philadelphia and, and Pennsylvania passes the first abolition law in the colonies. It's a gradual abolition law. And he listened to the great words in the Declaration of Independence. And James Fortin, who was part of a free family, came from an illustrious background, or at least a very interesting background. He decided to throw in his lot with the Americans. And he signed on to be on a privateer called the Royal Lewis, which was captained by Stephen Decatur. And they had great success. He comes back into port. He earns some money. He signs up again to go out in the Royal Lewis. But this time, the Royal Lewis is captured by the HMS Amphion. And Captain John Baisley takes a liking to James Fortin. He's a young man. He seems to be very courteous. And Baisley needs to have a companion for one of his young sons who is on board, a 12-year-old son. So he picks Fortin. And Fortin does such a good job and builds up such a rapport with 
the sun and also gains the respect of Baisley that when they pull into New York City, where he was going to take all of the other men that were captured on the Royal Lewis and dump them in one of the prison ships, he gives Fortin a choice. He goes, hey, you can come to England. You can be my son's ward and, and my ward, in effect, and you can be free. You can have all – you can go – become educated, all the great things in life. And Fortin says, sorry, I'm fighting for my country. I'm not interested in that at all. I'm a patriot. And he gets thrown into the Jersey prison ship and stays there for eight months before going back home. And later on, he becomes one of the most wealthy men in Philadelphia, a major sailmaker. And when he dies, he has a fortune of $70,000. He was very active in efforts to uh, help alleviate the suffering of blacks, Americans in in the new United States. So I just thought that was a really neat story. There are a lot of neat stories about the whaleboat privateers, both the ones that captured British ships, small ships, and did the right thing. And then there were also a bunch of whaleboat privateers who basically took their letters of mark as an opportunity to pillage loyalists on Long Island and do some really horrible things. So all the stories in here are not positive ones about privateersmen. Privateersmen, like anybody else, if you have a large enough number of individuals, you're going to find some that are doing things that are a little less than savory. There's a great story about John Greenwood in there, who didn't have an illustrious career as a privateersman, had an interesting one. But really what's interesting to me about him is after the war, he became George Washington's dentist. And I just thought that was a neat connection. There are just so many... uh, great stories in the book, and almost all of the names that are associated with those stories, all the privateers men that I talk about, are going to be names that the readers are never going to have heard before, most likely. Let me read at the end here. When, when Jefferson, I was sorry, when Franklin had the change of heart, he says that the American privateering success might have given our people too strong a relish for that most mischievous kind of gaming mixed with blood. But you think that, that that's okay. I mean, yeah. yeah. Yes, you do. I mean, uh, no, no, I, think, well, I think it has to be put in context. Benjamin Franklin, and I have a big section in the book on that, he himself uh, launched many privateering I know, I know he did. vessels yeah. on its way when he was in France. He was a big supporter of privateering when it met the needs of the Americans during the revolution. But I think he was also somebody who was sincerely opposed to war of any type. And he didn't like the idea of attacking merchantmen as opposed to attacking other military forces. And that's why his change of heart after the revolution, he tried to get England to renounce privateering, but they wouldn't go for it. Ultimately, the world's powers, with the exception of the United States, in 1856, after the War of Crimea, they did sign a treaty where privateering was essentially outlawed. But as people know, privateering is still part of our – isn't – is is codified in our Constitution. Article 1, Section 8, you can still today issue a letter of mark, I suppose, if Congress wanted to do so. No need to do that because we have a very effective Navy. But the reason that Franklin was in the minority after the war is that the Americans realized that they still had a very small Navy and privateering was still a very effective way to ramp up if they ever were attacked. So there may be broader philosophical arguments that you can can engage in as to whether privateering is morally right or wrong. But 
in the context of the American Revolution, I have no problem with privateering. During the War of 1812, we used it again. So did the British. Today, it's a totally different world and a different type of, of, of argument. Thank you, Eric Dolan, for speaking with us today about your new book, Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution. Great. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details. <laughs>